Welcome to the Thrive Church Podcast. Listen anytime you miss a service or want to hear a message again from our Sunday worship services and select special services. Lead Pastor Brian Bauer, as well as guest speakers, will bring messages that will help you encounter God, love people. Join us for virtual service on Facebook Live at Encounter Thrive. Or for those comfortable, we'd love to have you for our in-person services Sundays at 10. To learn about us, what we believe, how to connect, how to give, or how to find us, visit the all-new EncounterThrive.com. And now, here is our message. Hey, good morning, Thrive. Hope you're all doing well today. How's everybody doing? Nice. All right, all right, all right, all right. That's good. We've got, we're slowly getting our energy up. Um, hey, today we're ending our study of Paul's letter to the Colossians. We've been in it now for five, four or five weeks now. I think I've, I've lost track of time, but somewhere around there. But hey, before we jump in, why don't we go ahead uh, and pray? Father, I thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that in it, you continue to speak to us. God, as we close out this series um, and we look at these final verses of Paul's letter to the Colossians, I pray that you would um, give us discernment to see how this applies to our lives today. God, speak uh, maybe in very personal ways to individuals this morning, God, and help us as well to see how... Um, what you've called us to be, what you've called us to do uh, as, as the body of Christ. We give this time to you. Have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, hey, so we've seen, as we've gone through the book of Colossians, we've seen um, the colossal change. That's why we call the series Colossal, right, a series in Colossians. We've seen the colossal change that Christ has brought about by his death, his resurrection, the things that he did in his life. Uh, and we've seen how that has a colossal impact on, on every aspect of our lives, right? On every aspect of our um, individual identities as, as sons and daughters of the king, as well as our lives as a church, as a collective, as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Today we're bringing that series to a close. We'll be looking at Paul's closing greetings. Uh, this is something that's common, really, to all his letters. He, he, at the beginning of the letter, he'll, you know, do a one or two sentence greeting to specific people. Then he'll dive into super deep theology stuff, and then the last chapter, or you know, half the chapter is usually um, just closing greetings. He'll name a bunch of people um, and kind of give some final closing instructions. And he greets a few people, offers again final instructions, and then he gives a benediction or like some type of blessing. So this is the same thing that we see here in Colossians. So let's meet together in Colossians 4, verses 7 through 18. Those are the last couple of verses in Colossians. Colossians 4, 7 through 18. And it reads like this. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are, and, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, 
a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear witness that he has worked hard for you, and for those in Laodicea and, and, Hier- and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the, brother, to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. And that's how Paul ends his letter. The first two people that he names in this kind of closing section are Tychicus and Onesimus. Now, they were probably the messengers who actually brought the letter to the Colossian, uh, to the, uh, the Colossian church itself. So if you think that these first verses read a little bit like a reference letter, you wouldn't be wrong in thinking that. All right, Paul uses phrases like beloved brother or, or faithful minister and fellow servant to describe this man named Tychicus. And he uses similar language to describe the other man named Onesimus, describing him as one of them, likely meaning that he was from Colossae as well. And so the question becomes, why do they need a reference letter? Why do these guys need a kind of reference from, from Paul the Apostle? Remember that in you know, a few chapters before this, Paul was talking about this false teaching that had started making inroads into the church at Colossae. He was trying to convince the Colossians that the news that these two men that Tychicus and Onesimus brought about Paul and his ministry was true, right? So he was trying to prove and and kind of reassure them that these guys aren't frauds and that the letter that they brought was legitimately from Paul himself and contained correct and sound, you know, theology and correct doctrine. So at a personal level, level, though, it's unclear why Tychicus would need a reference letter. It doesn't really dive into it. We don't know actually much about Tychicus uh, from other letters. But it's understandable why Onesimus would need a kind of reference letter. Now, that name Onesimus should be familiar, hopefully, to to some of you, um, because he is kind of the subject of Paul's letter to Philemon. It's like one of the shortest letters he wrote. It doesn't even have individual chapters, literally. Uh, It's just one chapter, short letter, and he's addressed uh, the letter to Philemon, and he's writing about this man named Onesimus. Onesimus is a runaway slave, and in that letter, Paul says that he's sending him back to Philemon, his owner. Now, slaves were were not high up on the social ladder in the Greco-Roman world. And Greco-Roman society. Pastor Brian already talked about the, the practice of slavery in, in the ancient world, right? It's different from our race-based chattel kind of slavery that we think of here in an American context, but in the ancient context, slavery was a form of paying off your debt. So this man really had no social capital uh, in society, but he actually had no capital at all either because he owed uh, Philemon money, or maybe it was his parents because debt was inherited as well in that society. So Onesimus likely ended up a slave because of debt, either his own or maybe even his parents. And given the relatively low standing that slaves held in that society, it's little wonder then that Paul sends 
a reference letter with Onesimus. And the fact that Paul sends him to the Colossians was a very real application, if you think back, a very real application of his command regarding slaves and masters that Pastor Brian talked about at the end of Colossians chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, right? If you, if you don't remember, this is how, how that reads. So the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. Uh, starting at, here we go, at verse 22 of chapter 3. He says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. He turns to slave owners, the masters, and he tells them, treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So, the fact that Paul sends Onesimus to the Colossians, again, was a very real application of this command. He was inviting them to apply what he had just taught them, what he was instructing them. And he uses this word, brother. And it's the same word that he uses in instructions to Philemon, in that letter, actually, to describe how this slave should be treated. He says, welcome him as more than a slave. Welcome him as your brother. And it's the same word that he uses here in Colossians. The instruction to accept him as a brother, then, was not only to an individual, to Philemon, his owner, but now he's instructing the whole church, that whole community of faith, to accept this man, this slave, as one of their own. It was for the community of faith as a whole. And maybe he sends Tychicus with him in just in case the Colossians kind of chose not to, to follow his instructions. And moving on to verse 10, Paul mentions three men who he says are the only men of the circumcision with him. That's kind of a weird title um, to have, right? The men of the circumcision. Um, what he's talking about here, though, uh, is that they're the only Jews who are with him in that ministry. Uh, if you don't remember, there, there was a whole debacle about whether, you know, these, these Gentile, these non-Jew uh, Christians needed to be circumcised or not. And so Paul has written a ton about that. And so that's what he's talking about when he calls these men the men of the circumcision. These are Jewish men. And their names are Mark. Aristarchus, and Jesus. This is a different Jesus than our Lord Jesus Christ. And he refers to instructions regarding one man in particular, regarding Mark. And he says that if he comes to them. So why does he give this instruction? For that, we need to turn to the book of, of Acts. Acts 15, verses 37 through 41. Uh, this is uh, Luke writing here, and he's telling about these, um, basically, the missionary journey of Paul, Barnabas, and his ministry associates. And he says this, now Barnabas with them, John, called Mark. This is the Mark that we're talking about right now. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. 
And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. So that gives us a little bit of a clue, right? But let's look, let's look further back. Let's look back to Acts 13, verse 13. And it reads like this. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John, John Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. So now it's much clear, clearer, right? Apparently, Mark left them in Acts 13 and went back to Jerusalem. We're not told why, but he left them there and went back to the safety of Jerusalem. And later on in Acts 15, Paul thinks it's probably not wise to, to take someone on the next leg of the missionary journey if he'd abandoned them previously. So his previous track record, it's like, oh, maybe this guy's not as reliable as, as you think he is, Barnabas. So Paul decides, you know what, I don't, I don't think he should come with us. But Barnabas actually wants to take him with us. And there arose a sharp disagreement, as the book of Acts says. I don't know what that disagreement looked like. But it was big enough to cause Paul and Barnabas, these missionary partners, these friends, to part ways. See, Mark and his actions caused division. But what we see here in Colossians, when Paul mentions him, is that maybe there's a hint that there was some level of reconciliation between Paul and Mark at this point. And we see something similar in 2 Timothy 4.1 as well, where Paul writes to Timothy and says, get Mark and bring him with you. He's in prison at this point. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. So there is a change there. There's a shift that happens. And we're not privy to what exactly happened, what, you know, came about as a, that resulted in their friends and ministry partners and Paul trusting Mark again. But there was a change that happened there. There's an idea in marketing that showing is better than telling. If you want a customer to believe that your product is great, sure, you can tell them about how great your product is, but it's much more effective if you show them, right? That's why you get these, like, cheesy commercials. All of a sudden, you take, you know, Allerclear or whatever, and your whole world is just turned upside down, and it's, like, 100 times better, right? And so your life will be dramatically improved by this particular drug. And you see it in, actually in novels and films too, this idea that showing is better than telling, right? Instead of the narrator telling you how good or bad a character is, he outright shows you. If you remember, I don't know if you guys are Rocky Balboa fans, but at the beginning, what was the most recent one? After all the Rocky, it was Balboa, right? I can't, no one has, no one has seen Rock, Rocky, okay. Whatever, well, like Sylvester Stallone is like much older. It's not in the R Rocky trilogy, right? And he's like this kind of like a washed up boxer, right? And they spend the first like 20 minutes of the movie just showing what a kind of a stand-up guy he is, right? Imagine how much more effective, effective it would be if it was just like a narrator or like a text that said, Rocky is a really good guy. He did this, 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 and this. Eh, sure, it kind of gets to the point, but you're much more involved when you're seeing Rocky be selfless, when you're seeing him be a stand-up guy. It's that same idea that showing is better than telling. It connects the audience to the character in a way that mere description really can't. Showing is better than telling. See, Paul here was showing the Colossians how to live out this idea called reconciliation. Not just telling them. 
Sure, he could have left out the instructions regarding Mark from this letter. Sure, he could have simply referred back to, you know, how Christ has reconciled us to himself and we're called to the ministry of reconciliation as believers. But instead, he shows what reconciliation looks like in the real world. He shows what it looks like for him and Mark to be reconciled, and he invites them to do. Maybe this morning, you're like Mark. You abandoned maybe family, friends. You were the cause of of strife and, and division. Or maybe you're Paul. Maybe you're the one who was abandoned. Maybe you're the one who, who, was, uh, who was left. Right? How seriously do you take the fact that Christ can reconcile your relationships? That Christ can bring about reconciliation? How seriously do you take the ministry of reconciliation that we've been given, as Paul writes in, first, in 2 Corinthians 5.18? I mean, do you take it seriously enough to align your, your actions to your theology? See, Paul is famous for teaching a lot of theology, right? Peter talks about it in one of his letters, but like a lot of these things that he says that a lot of these things that Paul writes about, it's, it's hard to understand. Paul wrote in, I mean, the guy was trained under one of the greatest theological minds of, of that time, and, and he was a religious scholar. And so he wrote a lot of deep theory and theology. And so we forget, though, that sometimes he was very practical as well. At some point in many bachelor's degree programs, there's an internship kind of uh, requirement. It's a chance for the student to put into practice the things they've learned in the classroom, right? So employers look for that in the hiring process, like like. You're, you go to a, a job in, your, in the field that you want, and they want like 10 years of experience. It's like, well, no, I just graduated from college. I, I've been studying for the past four years. So the next best thing kind of is that internship sort of. So you're putting into practice the things you've spent, um, the, the time that you've spent in the classroom learning about these things. For my internship in Bible college, I remember I spent two months in a church in southern Illinois um, ministering in, in kind of various roles. I led worship. I, um, I taught a lot of, uh, I had to teach like six times. Um, and, and so it was a chance for me to put into practice the things that I had learned in Bible college. Right? The right internship can give you the exact experience and the, the right connections, that network that you need to propel you into your, into your career. It's a chance to put theory into practice. In the same way, theology that is not lived out is dead. Theology that is not lived out is dead. See, theology is meant to be lived out in daily life. At some point, your theology needs to be put into practice. Otherwise, what good is it? Right? You may know every verse of Scripture by heart, but, that doesn't, but if that doesn't change the way that you live your life, then what good is it? You might be able to describe the various aspects of God's nature in like really profound detail, but if that doesn't translate to how you view other people who are made in the image of that God, then what's the point? And if you understand fully what it means to be reconciled to God, but that doesn't change the way you interact with those who have wronged you or maybe that you have wronged, then what good is your theology? John 3.16 says that God loved the world enough 
to send his son to die. To send his son to save it. Theology without action is meaningless. If we move on to verses 12 through 14, Paul mentions three people. He mentions Demas, and the other is Luke. Now, Luke should be pretty familiar to you, right? So he wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he also wrote the book of Acts. And you've, uh, you know, read about him in other epistles as well. Paul mentions him a lot. But he also mentions this man named Epaphras. Now, Epaphras, he's already mentioned at the very beginning of the book, in verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. So he's mentioned him before. And the only other time that he is mentioned is at the end of his letter to Philemon. So this is pretty much as much information as we have about this guy, Epaphras, that Paul mentions like three times. Um, He's likely a convert from Paul's time with the Ephesians. Uh, There he probably heard the gospel when Paul was teaching and planting that church, and then he brought it back with him to Colossae, his hometown. And it seems that he ministered pretty extensively in Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. Now, those three cities are kind of like clustered together around this valley. And, and from what Paul has written, it seems that Epaphras left the churches in that area to help Paul while he was in prison. Now, think about it. This would have cost a lot of money, right? So it's likely that, that the Christians in Colossae and, and Laodicea and, and Hierapolis probably supported him in that effort, both financially and just in moral support as well. So by supporting Epaphras, those churches were pretty much indirectly ministering to Paul as well, a man that they had never even met before. Think about that. See, this is a prime example of of how various parts of the universal church build each other up. And this isn't the only time that this has happened. If we go back to the book of Acts, verses 27 through 30, uh, chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, says this, Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. See, in times of trouble, the church of Christ unites to build up the weak parts or the parts that are experiencing hardship that Jesus warned about in John 16 when he says, in this life, you will have trouble, you will have tribulation. Let me give, let me give you an illustration, right? I wish I had a, like a chain. I couldn't find one. But imagine a chain, Right? A chain is not made of just one piece of metal, right? What is, it, what is it made out of? Multiple links. It's made out of multiple pieces of metal that are linked together. Now, if one piece of metal, one link, experiences pressure, the rest of the links aren't unaffected by that pressure, right? Damaging one link weakens the chain as a whole. If you need to cut through a chain, let's say it's, it was holding something in place and you needed to, to break that chain, w- would you go around just cutting each individual link and then taking it out in place? No. Right? All you need to do is, is take out that one link, cut through that one link, and it weakens the whole chain. See, in the same way, the various 
communities of Christians around this country, the various communities of Christians around this world are linked together to form the church. And when one part of the church experiences pain, it affects us all. See, the church at Colossae understood this, and this is why they sent Epaphras to be with Paul in his suffering. Don't think of Paul, you know, sitting in some posh hotel writing these letters. No, the man was in prison. There have been reports in church tradition that this man was beaten, bent over, hunched over with scars all over his body because of the number of beatings that he had, that, that he experienced. See, the church in Paul's day was still growing, right? It didn't have the kind of influence or the kind of like proliferation and, and influence that, that we've experienced in the past two centuries. We live in a different world, one that's, dare I say, saturated in churches almost. And that saturation of churches in our local context has caused us to forget about our position in the universal church. See, what we need is a bigger vision of what the church is, a truly Catholic or universal vision. That's what Catholic means. It's a universal vision. And not only that, but we need a more connected vision of the church. The problem is we live in a sort of isolationist society, right? We're only focused on our own context, and it's hard to get out of that hole. Social media and, and technology kind of claim to bring greater connectedness, but in many ways, they dig our isolated holes even deeper instead of connecting them, right? The ability to live stream something is, is being utilized by many churches right now. We're utilizing it right now. Even before this season, you know, churches all over the world were recording video or audio of their church services, of their sermons, and people could listen to them. But if we're honest, I mean, we only hear the teaching of those who are in the U.S., right? How many of us have listened to the sermons by faithful pastors in South America or Asia or Africa? So while technology has the ability to bring about greater connectedness, man, the benefits of technology have hijacked, have been hijacked. And we are, as some have put it, entertaining ourselves to death. And we've forgotten the suffering of our brothers and sisters around the world. But here's the thing, we've had a wake-up call recently, right? We're currently in a situation that has parallels to the situation of, of Paul and Epaphras and the Colossians. We saw this week that the, the Taliban has once again taken control of Afghanistan. It's all over the news. And it's a very precarious situation in the Middle East uh, right now. Whatever your views on the political decisions that led up to this or, you know, the, the result of this takeover, you have to keep one thing in mind. Our brothers and our sisters are facing an uncertain and perhaps a mortally dangerous season. Now more than ever, we must pray for the protection and perseverance of our Afghan brothers and sisters. Pray for people like Epaphras to be sent to them for their encouragement. If possible, may we be like the Colossian church who sent not only their prayers, but their resources. Not only that, but we must also pray for the Taliban, right? And it does, that doesn't sit well with us to pray for people we see as our enemies. 
right? But we must pray that God will open their eyes to the reality of their actions and the reality of the mercy, the grace, and the love that they can experience in Jesus Christ, that they can experience in the one true God. In our present situation, uniting with suffering, not physically with us, becomes a lot more real. And at the same time, the command to look at those who have harmed our brothers and sisters and welcome them as new brothers and sisters is also just as real. See, our church is, is one link, a part of a greater chain. You know about the opportunities that we've already had to support other bodies of Christ, right? You know about the missionaries we support uh, in Poland and other organizations as well. But what you might not know is that we are only here today because of the influence and the support of other churches who have come alongside us as well. When we first planted, Parkview gave us a ton of resources, and a couple of their musicians would help us on a weekly basis to help out with worship. They even opened up a space in one of their campuses for us to rehearse midweek, because when we were planting there, I, as a worship leader, had no idea what I was doing. So I wanted to work all the kinks out in a rehearsal space before we got here on a Sunday morning. They opened up space every week so that we could do that. Most of you don't know it, but New Life in Homer Glen, that campus has bent over backwards to make sure that every week we have a space to rehearse. Never forget that we are one part in a greater whole. Now, after telling the Colossians about people who, you know, who send them greetings, Paul then moves and kind of shifts, and he gives his own set of greetings. He first greets the Christians at a city called Laodicea. Now, I mentioned already er, uh, um, earlier already that Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae, they were all three cities uh, kind of clustered around this, this small valley. Um, and so he greets two people from Laodicea specifically. One of those is Archippus, and then the other is Nympha. Note, that's the only woman named in this closing list of people. Now, this is, her case is really interesting because she is named as the owner of the house that these Christians meet in. So she was either probably unmarried or maybe even a widow. And apparently, again, those Christians met at her house. Now, what's interesting is that, remember, Paul has never been to Laodicea. Paul has never been to Colossae. He mentions that in the first chapter where, like, he, he says, I've never seen you face-to-face, -face, and, and, and that kills me because I want to see you face-to-face, -face, but I'm in prison. So he's never been to any of these cities, probably. So she was either a person he had maybe met elsewhere on his missionary journeys, and she was there, or maybe she was just well-known among those Christians there, and, report, and the report of that had gotten back to him. And judging from the way that Paul greets her specifically, she was likely a well-known church leader among, you know, house churches and leaders. She might have even been the particular leader of that particular house church, right? So Paul apparently had no, no qualms, no trouble with women ministry or serving in ministry leadership even. And he had no issues of recognizing her as a vital part of the growth of the Christians in Laodicea. And so he tells the Colossians to send this letter, the letter to the Colossians, to the Laodiceans once they've read it in their own congregation, right? So the Laodiceans can do the same thing. They can read it 
in their congregation. That's kind of how it was. Like someone would get up and probably Tychicus in this case would read the letter in, in the meeting. But we also find that Paul wrote a letter to a church uh, in Laodicea prior to actually wrote to the Colossians. But sadly, that's been lost. And he tells the Colossians to read the letter to the Laodiceans in their congregation as well. So what is Paul trying to do here, right? You know, have your letter read, read over there. Read their letter in your midst. What's he trying to do here? Because of how close Colossae, Laodicea, and, and Hierapolis were to each other, it was very likely that kind of the same false teaching that he's already mentioned in chapter 2, the same false teaching that he's kind of like uh, pushed up against, probably making inroads in those other two cities as well. And it's starting to spread in Laodicea. So he says, you know, send this letter to them as well because they're going to find this helpful. And, you know, maybe he covered things in, in the letter to the Laodiceans that he didn't cover in Colossians. And so he thinks that the Colossians could benefit from reading that. Remember that these communities of faith were relatively small groups, small groups of people in a pagan empire. So he could have also been trying to foster a kind of like a greater fellowship between those churches. See, it was vital for them to remain tight-knit, right? Not only for moral support, but honestly for financial support as well. So he was trying to foster that kind of fellowship, and it's hard to do when you're in prison, right? So that's why he relied on people like Epaphras, like Onesimus, like Tychicus, to make sure that this message gets out there. And then we come to verse 18. We've come to the final verse of Colossians. All right, Paul says that this last verse is written with his own hand, meaning that the, uh, the previous sections of the letter were probably written by a scribe while Paul was dictating. We see similar kinds of statements in his other epistles, like 1 Corinthians, in Galatians, and 2 Thessalonians as well. It's usually like towards the end. Right? Another layer kind of, of authentication. In the original copy of this letter, the readers would have seen that the penmanship was actually different because it switched from the scribe writing what Paul was saying to Paul, who he says, I'm now writing with my own hand. It switched to him instead of the scribe. And Paul gives an interesting command. He says, remember my chains. Now, don't think of this command as um, just something in mind. Right? That's not what he's talking about. He's, much, he's talking about much more than that. He uses actually the same word in Ephesians 2 when he says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. And he uses the same word again in Galatians 2.10 when he says, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And he uses the same word in 2 Timothy 2.8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my, my good news. See, the command to remember is a command to do deep deep pondering, sometimes even self-reflection as well. It's a kind of remembering that leads to action. In this case, the action is prayer. Paul is implicitly requesting them subtly to pray for him while he is in prison. 
Remember again that Paul has been in prison multiple times at this point. He's been beaten multiple times. He's been left for dead outside of Jerusalem. Not only that, but he's not young anymore, right? And so we see in this in this verse, in this one sentence, we see a very human side of Paul, not the super apostle that we sometimes think of. And just as he's encouraging the Colossians, so he needs a bit of encouragement as well. He's, Paul's being very frank here. Right? He's written to, to encourage the Colossians to keep growing in the faith. You guys are making such great progress in your understanding of Christ and your identities as sons and daughters of God. But at the end... Can you maybe just remember me in my prayers as well, if you have the chance? But his command to remember his chains is also a reminder of the worth of the gospel. See, for Paul, the gospel is valuable enough to be imprisoned for. Think of the career path that Paul was on before, before he became a Christ follower. Right? He was a respected religious leader, studied under one of, again, one of the greatest theological minds of that day. But upon encountering Jesus, he left that all behind to tell the good news of the gospel, to tell the truth of the gospel, that Christ is king and he has liberated us from spiritual oppression. He wants to share that with those who have not heard it. Right? And at multiple points, he could have thrown in the towel and given up. After the first time he was beaten or imprisoned, I would have, I don't know, just speaking out of my own humanity here, I would have double, like, taken a second and think, like, is it really worth it? Like, I've got a comfortable career as a religious leader, as a theologian, but is it really worth going to prison? Is it really worth being beat up for this thing called the gospel? After his imprisonment, after he was first beaten, he could have decided to stay low and not draw any more attention to himself. But he rejected safety because he viewed the gospel as more valuable than comfort, more valuable than safety, and ultimately, even his own life. See, the gospel is the most valuable thing in this life, but it can be claimed by the poorest soul. The gospel is the most valuable thing in this life, but it can be claimed by the poorest soul. How much do you value the gospel? How valuable is the gospel for you? Right? If push came to shove and you have to choose between your comfort and the gospel, what would you choose? If push came to shove and you had to choose between safety and the gospel, what would you choose? If push came to shove and you had to choose between your life and the gospel, what would you choose? Paul faced that choice multiple times over. Many of our ancient brothers and sisters faced that choice. Many of our brothers and sisters are facing that choice right now. I truly hope that we would all see just how valuable the gospel truly is in the same way that Paul did. And Paul closes by wishing that grace would be with 
the Colossians. The book of Colossians is largely focused on Christ as, again, the cosmic ruler over all things. He's defeated death, hell, and the grave. He's defeated everything and reigns over everything physical and spiritual, right? And his triumph has changed us as individuals, but also has created something new, the church, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. So I want to end by highlighting just two things, two major things about the church of Christ. And worship team, you can go ahead and come on up. I want to highlight two things about the church of Christ. The first is the foundation of the church. Notice how Paul begins and also ends his letter to the Colossians with the same thing. All right, let's, let's, let's read that first, uh, that first verse again. Sorry, that second verse. He says, grace to you and peace from our God and Father. And then he ends the letter by saying, grace be with you. Now, this thing called a, a grace wish is a component of all of Paul's letters, and it takes the place of a typical, like, goodbye or farewell in, in most typical letters. And it's usually specified as the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ or the grace of Jesus Christ in his other letters, but here he just says grace, right? And, and so grace, this idea, this word called grace, can either mean just general goodwill, like, hey, I, w I hope everything just goes well for you. I hope you guys do well. And it can mean something as general as that. But I think what Paul is doing here, as he often does, is he's going a lot further. He's going beyond that general idea, that general meaning. He's talking about divine favor, something more along the lines of may God's favor be upon you or be with you. And when he says with you, he means that he hopes that God's divine favor would be present in their community, that we that that favor would be present among the Colossians, that they would experience God's grace. What does that mean? This means truly experiencing what it means to be a son or daughter of God. Right? It means knowing that, knowing what it means to be truly forgiven, knowing what it means to be truly reconciled with your Creator. It means truly experiencing the hope of resurrection even in the midst of death. Right? All of those things have come about as a result of Christ's finished work. And that favor, that grace is undeserved. This undeserved favor is the only reason the church exists. See, the church of Christ is built on God's grace. That's what Paul is reminding them here. And lastly, I also want to highlight the diversity of the church. Right, take a look back at the names Paul lists in the closing section we've been looking at. Right, did, the, did Paul associate with people who, who looked like him? Not at all, right? Onesimus was a slave. Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus were Jews like him, yes. But Luke was a Gentile, a non-Jew. Nympha was a woman. See, Paul had relationships with people from different social classes, different ethnic backgrounds, genders, and he considers them all brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a Spanish word, uh, mestizo or mestizaje, 
Originally, it was used to describe the offspring of, uh, of Spanish and indigenous people. When, when Spain colonized different countries, uh, you know, they would mix and, uh, with the native population and their offspring, their offspring kind of created a new kind of people and they were called mestizos. They were mixed, they were mistaje, mestizaje. And this is, a, I think, a helpful idea for us as Christians because it, it truly, I think, describes the church of Jesus Christ. It's a mixed group of people. I'm not just talking about ethnicity here. I'm talking about much more than that, right? In Christ, God has torn down walls of division that used to separate genders, that used to separate social classes. Yes, that used to separate ethnicities. Name whatever you want. And he has created out of that a new people. See, the church of Christ is mestizo. And our little gathering this morning here is a microcosm. It's a glimpse of what he has done on a cosmic, universal scale. And I know that sometimes it's difficult and it's, it, it's hard to to have a vision of this mestizo church, of the mixedness of the church of Christ. All right, but we can do little things to remind ourselves of that reality. That's why a few weeks ago we sang a part of a song in worship in Spanish to remind us that on a Sunday morning like this, we gather and we sing praises to our God, but at the same time, people in Latin America, people in Europe are singing praises to Him as well. And it gets us out of our little bubble and reminds us that we are part of something bigger. Right? That's why we pray for Christians outside of the U.S. like our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, knowing that we are joining them in their own prayers. Right? One day, all the mixed people of God who have experienced His grace will sing of how great He is as one body. So let's remember that truth today. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. We hope this message spoke to you and helped you grow in your knowledge of and love for God. Visit us online anytime at EncounterThrive.com and reach out with questions, prayer requests, or comments. We hope to see you for our in-person services in Lockport, Illinois, Sundays at 10.